Winter of 2021, Colton and I met. And there's a story I have to tell you about Colton and I's introduction that I think is just sort of appropriate. So I've, you know, I'm there, I'm in Newfoundland, I've been in Newfoundland since 2011, and some of my pastor colleagues in the city start kind of talking. There's a guy coming, he's an Anglican, he's a good brother, and he's coming, and you're going to love him, Keegan. Why are you going to love him? What's so special about Colton? His name's Colton, by the way. What's so special about Colton? Well, this man loves Jesus, loves the Lord. He's coming to minister in this province, and he is enthusiastic about the outdoors. This guy loves hunting and fishing. Well, I figured that, you know, if this guy loves hunting and fishing, why don't we go out and do some hunting? Now, I am an aspiring outdoorsman, okay? <laughs> I try my best, and I think if I can get this guy on side, then he's going to show me a thing or two. So what we decide to do, or what I decide to do, I'm going to, you know, welcome to Newfoundland, Colton. We're going to go hunting for eiders. Now, an eider is a sea duck, which spends its time up north in the Arctic and comes down to Newfoundland, the Maritimes, and Maine for the winter. So if it's coming down to our neck of the woods in the winter time to get away from the cold, then that tells you something about this duck. It's about the size of a small goose. So, let's go eider hunting. The caveat, and I don't know that I mentioned this to Colton at the time, I had never successfully done this before. So I figured, let's bring Colton in. We're going to go eider hunting. So, we went to a place called Cape Pine. Cape Pine, if you want to, a little later on, you can Google this spot. Cape Pine is on the southern part of the Avalon Peninsula. So the Avalon Peninsula would be, your right, my right, your left, east in Newfoundland, okay? As far east as you can go, Cape Pine is on the southern part of the Avalon Peninsula. And the cliffs down there are shockingly large, okay? And we have to go down and sort of navigate these cliffs. So it's a two-hour drive from St. John's, early in the morning we go, and I had never gone hunting here before, I just kind of looked out on the maps, and I had been around this area, uh, at different times exploring, I said, let's go. Well, we go down and kind of have a few false starts. Eventually, we make it down all of these cliffs to the water. We set out our decoys, and it's February, so it's kind of cold. Well, we're fellowshipping and just having a good time getting to know one another. And wouldn't you know it, a raft of about a thousand, give or take, a thousand eiders come swimming our direction. And a raft just means a whole bunch of them close together in the water, and they make a bit of a, a raft type of a figure. Well, this raft becomes starts swimming our direction. Now, like I mentioned, I had never done this before, so my information about hunting eiders is completely derived from Google. I'm reading the forms, I'm getting the wisdom from Google. This might just be a lesson in you know where you get your information. So I read that if you want to attract the eiders to come in your direction, you get a black flag and you wave it. And they'll think this is birds flapping their wings and they'll come to you. So we see this raft, a thousand strong, right? And Colton and I were kind of, okay, they're there and you know, maybe a hundred meters out. And we got to bring them in close, right? We, we got to make them, you know, get them a little closer so that we can get a shot away. And I don't know who said it first. We'll say Colton did. <laughs> Should we wave the flag? 
Yeah, let's wave the flag. And we wave the flag one wave. And I'll tell you something. It's a magnificent sight to witness a thousand eiders flying the other direction. Because <laughs> that's exactly what happened. We were there. We put in all this time. We got close. And at the end of the day, we were completely rejected. We had to hike out from this, from this location, this spot that was very challenging, very hard to get to. We put in a lot of time, a lot of effort, risking life and limb, only to walk out empty-handed, being completely rejected. Well, as a Christian, how do you handle rejection? Is this something that we should fear, hope for? expect something that we should be surprised at now implied in being a people who proclaim the gospel message is the idea that we will suffer rejection not all are going to accept the message so how do we understand rejection how are we to perceive this how are we to process rejection some in the history of the church have viewed this as something to be overcome by force rejection is unacceptable and the church ought to leverage its powers, perhaps maybe even leverage the state to do its bidding and impose the Christian message and Christian morality on unwilling subjects. So, some in the history of the church have taken this approach, something to be overcome by force. Others, taking a less on-the-nose approach, have opted to adjust the message in the midst of rejection. The message of, the message of sin... The message of the cross, that might not sell well in every society, in every period of time in history. So in order to garner greater favor and less rejection, maybe the message needs to be made more palatable. Some have taken that approach as well. Well, how are we as the Church of Jesus Christ to understand rejection? And how, in our understanding of this, will it inform our ministry in this world. How do we as Christians understand rejection? In our passage this morning, we're going to see Jesus rejected in Nazareth and him preparing the twelve when they will inevitably face similar kinds of rejection. He's going to come to his hometown, preach, face suspicion, and then ultimately rejection, and then he's going to send out the twelve to preach, giving them instructions for when they too inevitably will face the same kind of rejection. So as we know, we're in Mark chapter 6 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. And this passage breaks down quite neatly into two basic parts. Verses 1 through 6, we see Jesus rejected in Nazareth. And then verses 7 through 13, the disciples' rejection anticipated. So Jesus rejected in Nazareth. And the disciples' rejection anticipated. Let's get into our first point. Now, up to this point in Mark's narrative, Jesus' ministry is focused around the Sea of Galilee. But when we come to chapter 6, the setting changes a little bit. Let's read verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. So, in verse 1, we learn that Jesus moved away from sort of this predominant coastal ministry, the coastal communities around the Sea of Galilee, and he comes to his hometown. Now, the astute reader of the Gospel of Mark will know, if they're coming up to this point, where exactly this hometown is. We learn in chapter 1 that he is Jesus of 
Nazareth. So his hometown is in Nazareth. Accompanying Jesus are his disciples. Again, working from Mark's gospel, one will learn in chapter 3 that primarily who Mark's referring to when he speaks of the disciples is the twelve. They're listed in chapter 3, and the twelve disciples would later become known as the twelve apostles. If you would like, you can put a little asterisk beside Judas' name. But the focus here is the twelve. So, Jesus and his disciples have come to Nazareth, and in verses 2 and 3, we see why they're there, and what kind of response this is going to invoke. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. The reason that Jesus comes back to his hometown from these coastal communities is so that he may continue his ministry of preaching and teaching. Now, up to this point, while other things may have characterized the ministry of Jesus, healing, casting out of demons... We learn in chapter 1 that the reason he came out was that he may preach. This is the primary focus of Christ's ministry. So he enters the synagogue, and during the time when there would have been sort of an open platform where anyone may share, Jesus ascends and begins to preach and teach the word. Now what's noteworthy in Mark's account is that Mark doesn't tell us where Jesus was preaching from. Luke's account does. Mark's doesn't. And so, whenever we read the Gospels, whenever you're reading the Gospels, and you'll come across an account where, you know, you see it in Matthew and Luke, Matthew and Mark and Luke, you see it in more than one location, and you see details that are distinct from one Gospel to another. Ask yourself the question, why is, at least in our situation, why is Mark leaving these details out? Luke adds them. Why does Mark leave these ones out? What is Mark getting at that's streamlined by leaving out the details of where Jesus was teaching from? What's Mark communicating to the reader that's streamlined by his being concise? Or, what's the point? What's the point in leaving this detail out? Or if there's a detail added, what's the author pointing at? What are they getting at by adding this nuance? Taking note of those things is going to help us in our understanding of the scriptures. How does this nuance contribute to the thrust of the writer's argument? The gospel writers at times may be recounting the same stories, but their purposes in recounting them may be different. So what's Mark getting at here? Just keep that question in the back of your mind as we continue our study this morning. A clue is going to be in the emphasis that's placed on the response. Okay, so there's a clue. What's Mark getting at? A clue's found in the emphasis placed on the response. In the second half of verses 2 through 3, the audience is astonished. It's the word is translated here. They're astonished. Now, the astonishment in this passage is, is contrasted with an astonishment earlier in the Gospel of Mark. People heard Jesus preach and teach, and they're astonished that he preaches with authority. 
In contrast to the scribes and the religious rulers, this man speaks with authority. They're astonished. Well, here, the astonishment isn't positive as it was back in chapter 1. The astonishment's cynical. It's cynical. Look at their questions. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. The first question is really informed by the rest, isn't it? They call him this man. This man. They know this man. This is Jesus. We know Jesus. We watched him as a boy. We watched him grow up. We observed him working in his father's shop. We know Jesus. And you know, there are always some rumors sort of floating around about him. Just kind of the timing of his birth didn't make sense. And those who were around at the time just, you know, we've heard some things. We know Jesus. We know this man. What kind of con is he pulling? We know him so well that the wisdom he appears to possess and the mighty works done by his hand, or at least apparently done by his hand, they couldn't possibly be done by him. We know this Jesus. This is how, we, how well we know this man. We know his mother. We know his brothers and sisters. We know his job. He's a carpenter. He fixed my deck last year. We know Jesus. We're not surprised by him. There's nothing special about Jesus. And look at what verse 3, verse three says. They took offense at him. They took offense. Well, in verses 4 through 6, Jesus responds to the reaction of those in the synagogue. Let's read verses 4 through 6. And Jesus said to them, <clears throat> A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Jesus starts his response in verse 4 by quoting a common Greek proverb which speaks to the response of his hometown. Now, if we're familiar with proverbial sayings, even in the scriptures, we'll know that there are sort of general truths about which exceptions do exist. But the principle carries. A familiar phrase in our day is that familiarity breeds contempt. A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown. The better you know someone, the less impressive they are. You learn that they, like you, eat with a fork and a knife. They're not all that different. They're really not all that special. If you were to drive up the road here, you'll come up to the university. And I think it's still there. I'm not sure. Uh, but Andrews Hockey Growth Programs are located in this facility. This is where they have their base of operations. And if you go in, you'll see different pictures of hockey players who throughout the years graduated from this program. One of them is Sidney Crosby. Okay, pretty familiar name, a pretty famous hockey player. Some might say he's the best ever to play the game. Around here, people look and they see a picture of a 13-year-old boy that says, Thank you, Alan Andrews, for all of your help. You know, he's good, but he's Sidney Crosby, right? We know Sidney. 
he's good, and we've kind of witnessed him grow up. This familiarity makes his fame, makes his stature a little bit less remarkable. Well, something similar is going on here with Jesus. Jesus is suffering the same kind of reaction. These people know him, or at least they think that they do, and that familiarity blinds them to who he truly is. His teaching's remarkable, his signs are undeniable, but they can't see past him as Jesus, the local boy. The result of this is explained in verse 5. He could do no mighty work there. Now this requires a little bit of explanation. Uh, the first thing is to see what Mark means by the phrase mighty work. Primarily what Mark means here, and this is explained by the following clause, is the healing of those who were sick. So what Mark means when he's talking about the mighty work is a healing of individuals. Now, you all would have studied chapter 5. How many weeks did you do on chapter 5, brother? Two or three, Two or three weeks on chapter 5. Up to this point in Mark's narrative, coming out of chapter 5, you would have witnessed where Jesus' ability to heal is not in question. There's healing. There's healing. There's healing. There's miraculous healings. Demons are cast out. Jesus' ability to heal is not in question. So what's the difference between chapter 5 and chapter 6? Well, the difference between these two chapters really boils down to the faith of the people. In chapter 5, we see examples of faith either before the healing took place or faith as a result of the healing taking place. The implication then of chapter 6 is that there is no faith in Nazareth. There's no faith to bring about healing. And if Jesus were to perform miraculous healing in a public forum, the result would not have been anybody trusting in the message. There would be no faith before the healing, and there would be no faith to follow a healing if Jesus were to do one. Apparently, we do learn, just Mark adds a little detail at the end, there were a few sick people who were healed, but the emphasis on the passage is on the unbelief which pervaded the community, as verse 6 spells out. So, that's our first point this morning, Jesus' rejection in Nazareth. Our second point is found in verses 7 through 13, the disciples' rejection anticipated. The disciples' rejection anticipated. We'll start by reading verses 7 through 11. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. He said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from that area. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, as we study this, allow me just sort of to reiterate what our task is here this morning. Our focus is to answer the question, what is Mark doing in the telling of this account? Mark's adding detail. He's leaving out detail. He has a purpose in telling the story his specific way. What's Mark doing? What's Mark getting at? 
Recall, again, up to this point in the book, things are largely going well. If you're reading up to Mark, chap you know, Mark chapters 1 through 5, people are accepting the message. The gospel is being exception, accepted. Salvation looks like it's at hand. You know, there may be a few religious leaders whose political power is in jeopardy. They don't like that, but well, we're, we're familiar with political leaders. They do that. That's no big surprise. The message is being accepted. People are being healed. The kingdom of God is at hand. Things are going well. Well, we come here to chapter 6. And what do we see? Jesus is rejected in Nazareth. The disciples are prepared for their rejection. And this isn't in my passage, but I assume it will be preached next week. John the Baptist is going to get his head chopped off. So things take quite a drastic turn when we get to chapter 6. For the audience of this gospel, the original audience, this is going to serve them as they press on as the church in the midst of a hostile empire. If they suffer rejection, which is always a very real possibility, if you suffer rejection as a result of your testimony for Jesus, you will be following in the footsteps of your Savior and of those of a godly heritage who came before you. Now, in sending out the twelve, there's some instructions which Mark sees relevant to the discussion. Positively, they're to go out two by two, take a staff, wear sandals, and bring a single tunic. Jesus also gives them authority over unclean spirits, presumably to carry out the same miraculous work as Jesus himself carried out. Negatively, they're to bring no bread, no bag, and no money. This is explained in verse 10 as they're to rely on others for their provisions. They're not to carry out this ministry in a manner which maximizes profits. Profits with an F. I'm going to say profits with a PH next. The traveling prophets of the day would have gone house to house getting as much as they can. So if they go one house, their provisions are provided for, their needs are taken care of, they may even receive a little bit of money. Well, if you go to the next house where you're received again, you earn a bit more. Jesus says you're not to be like that. This isn't about maximizing profits. This isn't about earning money. If you go and you're received, stay there until you leave the area. The disciples are not to have such a focus on money. If they're received in one house, they should stay there and not work the town for a greater income. In verse 11, Jesus works into the commissioning how they're to respond when rejected. Now the way that this passage reads, the, the emphasis really is placed on two things. How the disciples are to act when they receive provisions, so when they're received, and then how the disciples are to act when they are rejected. But remember where we are in the book. All the way up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, things have been going very well. So this is going to be a little bit shocking to the reader. Why is there kind of this outdue importance placed on the idea of being rejection, being rejected? Why is this even a possibility? It's clear things are going well. Why is this such a focus? Why, are, why is the reader given this detail, and why is this detail given such a prominent place in this passage? Well, again, what's the point Mark's making to his readers? Here, it's clear they are to expect rejection. Don't be surprised when it shows up. 
Now for this church, a plant is called a church plant. For this church, a plant starting fresh, hoping to see men and women become worshipers of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The message of the Gospel of Mark to you this morning is expect rejection. Talk about a word in season, eh, brother? <laughs> expect rejection. Don't be surprised if people reject you. Your Savior was rejected. Those he sent from to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth also experienced rejection. How do you expect the world to respond to you? That they're going to welcome you with open arms. Everything's going to be great. The whole community is going to come to Christ and be saved. Now, that can happen. God is gracious. But this is not the message. This is not the footsteps where we follow. We are to expect rejection. And we'll talk about this a little bit more as we close. So, baked into the commissioning of the twelve is for them to expect rejection. Verses 12 and 13 round out the passage. Let's just read these final verses. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The implication from the results is that many came to trust in the gospel. Many were saved. There was faith absent in Nazareth, but present to where the twelve were sent out to preach So even in the midst of this call to anticipate rejection, many individuals responded to the preaching of verse 12 in faith. So there can be an acceptance of the message even if Jesus and the disciples will be rejected by the nation at large, which ultimately they will be. Well, this is our passage. How can we apply it in a couple practical ways here to our specific situation this morning. There's two practical points of application that I'd like to draw out. The first one is a general observation from the Gospel of Mark. The second one is from this text in particular. So a general uh, thought of application from the Gospel of Mark, a specific thought that's derived straight from our text. The first point of application is the centrality of preaching in the Gospel of Mark. And that emphasis carries on into our passage. The centrality of preaching that we see presented in the Gospel of Mark. The book opens with John the Baptist proclaiming repentance. When the public ministry of Jesus begins, he states explicitly that the reason he came out is so that he may preach. In chapter 3, verse 12, or chapter 3 where the 12 are commissioned, It's for the expressed purpose of preaching. Here in our passage, we see Jesus in Nazareth preaching. And when the twelve are sent out, as verse 12 says, they are proclaiming that people should repent. Now this isn't merely endemic to Mark's gospel. Stated simply, Christianity is a preaching and teaching religion. Communication of the word is to be central. And if I might encourage you, brother, as you're endeavoring to do a ministry here, to work and minister amongst these Christians, make the metric by which your ministry is judged and make the metric by which you judge Colton's ministry is on the emphasis 
that's placed on preaching the word. Are other things part of the job? Of course they are. But Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 8 thing, says that the thing that sets apart a pastoral elder for financial remuneration is that they labor in preaching and teaching and they do it well. It's part of the job and it's a central part of the ministry of the church. So Mark, excuse me, make, make this essential part of the ministry of this church. Be known as a people of the book, an assembly where the word of God is given priority. A church that like Jesus and the apostles places a focus on the ministry of the word. Now, if any of you remain unconvinced, I don't believe that you do, but for the sake of argument, let me just give you a concise list of the things that the Word of God does. This is from the Scriptures. I can give you the references later on if you'd like. These are the things that the Word of God does. It creates. It sustains creation. It has effect on animate and inanimate objects. It judges and heals. It teaches, reproves, corrects and trains it discerns intentions and exposes hearts it transforms believers and enables to them to live the christian life the word sanctifies above all else if you could say such a thing the word of god saves the word saves it's no wonder that paul calls timothy to preach the word. It's no wonder that we see Jesus in Nazareth, the Son of God incarnate, preaching the word. It's no, no wonder that when he commissions the twelve, what does he tell them to do? Preach the word. Brother, preach the word. So, our first practical point is the emphasis we see on preaching in the Gospel of Mark. The other practical point is one that we've already alluded to in our study, and that is that rejection is to be expected. Don't be surprised when people rejection, when people reject you. Now on this occasion, or the occasion here, and the particular mission of the twelve may have a nuance, it's a bit different. They're, we're sort of walking in the steps of the prophets of the Old Testament. So when they go and they're rejected, shake the dust off of their shoes. But the implication is the same. Don't be surprised. For the church in Rome experiencing rejection, this gospel gives them a context for such things as they read about John the Baptist, the apostles, and then ultimately Jesus himself suffering the same kind of rejection. The key is not the absence of rejection. Rather, the key is being faithful in the midst of it. But faithfulness in this context is what? Preaching the word preaching the word so as we conclude as we wrap it up we've seen two things this morning we saw jesus come to his hometown and he was rejected and then he commissioned the 12 and prepared them for a similar rejection even in the midst of success as we all go out this morning let us follow in the footsteps of our savior and preach his word even if the prospect is being dismissed the same way that he was and experiencing the same kind of rejection that he 